thank you for coming tonight. We appreciate you being here, those here in the auditorium and those who are listening in via the FM 106.3 and those who may be listening from home via the live stream. Thank you for your uh, interest in God's work. Uh, before we begin our study, let's uh, go to our God and work in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful to you for this quiet hour of the evening, to have the opportunity to gather here with our brethren to, to study our Bibles, to learn more of you. We pray that you would be with us, help us to have open and receptive hearts, and that as we study, we may come to a more perfect and more accurate knowledge of your will. We pray that we may have the desire to use what we learn in our lives each and every day, that we may be more useful and profitable you, to you in the future been in the past. Please forgive us, we pray, of any sin that we've committed against you. We pray for clean and pure hearts who may grow closer to you day by day, grow to be more like you as days, as days go by. We're mindful of all of our number who are sick and unable to be with us this evening. We pray that you put your healing hand upon them that they may, may be well again and be able to be with us here once again. Pray, Father, that You'd be with us now throughout this service, throughout our lives, when our time upon this earth is ended, that we may have that home with you in heaven, all redeemed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, Ezra chapter 7 through 10, we're going to attempt to cover those this evening. Let's do a really quick recap of how we got to where we are. <clears throat> chapter 1 was when King Cyrus first year of his reign issued the decree for the, uh, the first return of the exiles back to Judah and they were to go back and rebuild the temple. He specifically mentions that in chapter 1 of Ezra. That was about 536 B.C. Chapter 2 was a listing of some of those returnees including Jeshua the high priest and Zerubbabel whose uh, descendant would be the Messiah. Chapter 3 is when they began offering the sacrifices according to the law as it was written in the law of Moses. And they also laid the foundation of the temple there. That was about 535 B.C. So they'd begun to rebuild the temple. And then opposition arose in chapter 4. The Samaritans and other people that surrounded them. And they uh, discouraged them to the point that the Jews actually stopped working stopped building on the temple, and that lasted for about 15 years. And then chapter 5, that's when Haggai and Zechariah, God sent them to prophesy, and then um, Zerubbabel and Jeshua got the people going again and got, got them to building the temple again. And then the governor of the province sent a letter to King Darius. He wanted to know where they got the authority to do this, but he allowed them to continue to build until he could write to Darius and get an answer back as to if he could verify that they were telling the truth about Cyrus writing this decree to allow them to build the temple. Chapter 6, King Darius does a search and does find Cyrus's decree and allowed the, the building to continue and, and even added to the decree in, in ways that would help them even more to get it built even faster. And so they completed that building then in four years 516 B.C. So fast forward in your mind now 58 years. So the end of chapter 6 to the beginning of chapter 7 
there's a 55, 57, 58 year gap. And it was in this time that uh, the events recorded in the book of Esther took place. You'll see, uh, for those of you out in your vehicles, we're looking at the timeline that, that I gave you back when we first began this study. And we got a, a blue arrow pointing towards uh, 516 BC when the temple was completed. And then what's supposed to be, again, yeah, it's a red arrow, it's not up here. <laughs> of uh, 458 B.C. where we began in Ezra chapter 7. Just this note before we start reading here is that we'll see in these first few verses that Ezra was not only a priest, but he was a scribe as well. And of course, you know what a scribe was. Those were people that, that made manual copies of the law. And so a scribe would have a pretty good knowledge of the law of Moses. I bring that up for two reasons, a priest and a scribe. That tells us that God uh, allowed the deportation of the Jews. It was in three phases, actually, but they did it in such a way that they still had copies of the law and they still had their ancestral records, and they would need those because God had prophesied before that he would return a remnant, okay? And if that remnant was going to return and keep the law of Moses, then they would need copies of the law and they would need their ancestral records so they could know who would be the, the priests and so forth. So God, again, we see it over and over and over again that God is in control of all of these things. And, and we'll see it again and again as we go to these next few chapters. So chapter 7, verse 1 says, Now after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, there went up Ezra, son of Sheriah, now, the rest of that for going through verse 5 is his ancestral records to show that he was a descendant of Aaron and therefore he, he was a priest. <clears throat> but I, I uh, just want to mention just one or two people here. Uh, it says son of Sarai, but we'll see as we go through this that when it says son, it, they didn't use the word like, like we do. Uh, the son means a descendant, and often in these uh, these lists of descendants, they skip people. If Ezra had been a direct son of Sariah, Ezra would have had to have been about 130, 135 years old, <laughs> because Sariah lived that that far before the, the, the dates here. So there were some uh, at least a couple of generations between Ezra and Sariah. Now, if you look at Second uh, Kings chapter 25 there, verses 18 through 20, we won't read all of that, but just uh, summarize it a little bit. It, called, it says, this is in 586 B.C. When, the, when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians' army had destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and taken the remainder of the people into Babylonian captivity, this Sariah was the chief priest. And uh, after Jerusalem was destroyed, they took him and several other of the leading men in Jerusalem and took them up to Riblah, and there they were all put to death. But if you look at the, the chronology in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, we see that this Sariah did have at least one son named Jehozadak that survived, and he was taken with the rest of the people uh, away from Jerusalem and away into Babylonian captivity. So he did have a son that survived it. And so Ezra would be descended from either this son or if there was another one that, that wasn't mentioned. 
So that, that accounts for the, Ezra wasn't 130 years old, but he was a, probably a grandson, or maybe even a great-grandson of this Sariah. Got to hit the button then. And there's First Chronicles chapter 6. I should have done that previously. Okay, skip down to, to verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given, and the king granted him all he requested, because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Now, we were never told everything that Ezra requested of the king. Uh, I rather suspect it wasn't all that the king granted him because it, it would have been a bold person to request, and we'll see here in a few moments, all that, that Artaxerxes granted him. But he did whatever it was he requested, he did get, and I suspect even, even more than he requested. I was wondering <clears throat> uh, what it was that, that Artaxerxes, what, what was it that gave him such a good, uh, that Ezra a good report with the king that he would do this, how we'd have that much confidence in Ezra. And, and the, I guess the answer really is we're not, we don't know. We don't know if God had a hand in it, but exactly how he did that, I don't know. But one thing to think about, a, a possibility here. Remember the, the events in the book of Esther took place prior to this. And Artaxerxes' father, Xerxes, was the king at that time. And if you, you've studied Esther before, and you remember by, by the time you get to the end of book, the book of Esther, Esther herself is the beloved queen, highly regarded by the king, and her uncle, her uncle Mordecai was placed second in, in command, only under the king. He was second in command of all the Persian Empire, just the only person higher than him was King Xerxes. So it's possible that Artaxerxes, which would be his son, knew about all of these things taking place and maybe that had something to do with why he looked upon Ezra with such favor. Don't know, that's just a possibility, something to think about. Verse 7 tells us, that's how we know that it was in 458 because it tells us these things happened in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. You can look back through history then and uh, and see what year that was. And so verse 8, he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month in the seventh year of the king. And verse 9 tells us, if you do the math there, that it took them four months to, to get there. Uh, they left on the first of the fifth, or the first of the first month, and arrived the first of the fifth month. So it took four months to travel from Babylon to Jerusalem. But then it tells us something else that's uh, much more important. Look at the end of verse 9, Ezra chapter 7, verse 9. We talked about they arrived in Jerusalem on this date because the good hand of his God was upon him. And so then the first thing that would come to my mind is wonder why that was. Why did God favor Ezra like this? Well, he answers that in verse 10. Look at verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach it. Three things uh, that we see here. First, he said he set his heart to, to study uh, the word of God. And uh, 
you know, you remember last week we talked about how to be approved of God. If you were here, remember that. We looked at 2 Timothy 2.15, study or, or be diligent to show yourself to prove to God, learn to handle accurately the word of truth. So if we want to be approved like Ezra was approved, then it's going to take some study just like it, it did for Ezra. John chapter 8, 30 and 31 says, Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are my travels indeed, and you shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. So before you can be made free and abide in his word, you got to know what the word is. So study then is very important. But it takes more than just study. It said that Ezra not only studied word, but his intent, he had set his heart not just to study, but he set his heart to practice what he learned uh, in the word of God. Again, last week we looked at uh, how to be approved of God and we looked at Hebrews chapter 11. It's talking about faith there in verse 1. Verse 2, it says, By it, that is their faith, the men of old gained approval. And he mentions Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Moses. And he, he could have put Ezra in there too. He didn't put He couldn't put every faithful, godly man in, in this list. But Ezra could have been there too because he did the same thing that Abel and these other faithful men did as he, he acted on the faith in God. When he learned what God's will was, then he put it into practice in his life. And that's what Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Moses, all those are good examples there in Ezra, or in Hebrews chapter 11. So if we want to be approved of God like Ezra was, we've got to study it and we've got to practice it. And uh, Matthew 7:21 tells us uh, basically the same thing and how important that is. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of the Father. So the one that practices what he learns. But Ezra didn't stop at just learning it and practicing it. Now, Ezra was a priest, and one of the jobs of the priest was to teach the people. The people needed to know what the word of God was too. And that was part of the priest's work was to teach the people. Um, and we as Christians ought to be doing similar kind of things. You know, in Romans 1 and verse 16 tells us that today, of course, it's not the law of Moses, it's the gospel. The gospel is God's power to save. But if the gospel is going to save, people have to hear it, don't they? And so it's no, no surprise then that in Matthew 28, almost the last thing Jesus said to his apostles was to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded. So it's go teach. And if you look there in the early chapters, I think especially in chapter 8 of Acts when the gospel began to be, to be preached, as disciples were persecuted and scattered around the world, really, it says they went everywhere teaching. So they were doing just exactly what, what Ezra was doing. And that's how Ezra was approved of God. Then there's Romans 10, uh, well-known passage there. Uh, Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe on him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So if you go backwards through that verse, you have the word of Christ, 
that's heard and believed, and then they call on the name of the Lord. What that means is, is they uh, did like Israel did. They practiced what they had learned. That's what it means to call on the name of the Lord. Okay, so Ezra then was approved of God because he had not only set, on his, set his heart on studying and learning the word of God, but to practice it and to teach it to others. So skip down to about verse 12, so then of uh, Ezra chapter 7, that Artaxerxes wrote this decree to Ezra the priest and the scribe. Uh, he said, I've issued a decree that any of the people of Israel can, can go with you and return with you to Jerusalem. And he goes on to say that uh, the king and his seven counselors, look what they did. Um, verse 15, they, they made an offering of gold and silver for Ezra to take back with him. And then verse 16, others also offered gold and silver all around the province of Babylon, the free will offering. And uh, he says at the end of that verse what all of this is for. It's for the house of God in Jerusalem. And in verse 17, he tells what they're supposed to do with these funds. And he starts off by saying that by the animals that would be used in the sacrifices there in, in the temple. In verse 18, and he says, whatever seems good to you, to do with the rest. If you have funds left over, then you can do whatever seems good to you. But then he qualifies that at the end of verse 18, according to the will of your God. So you don't just use it for anything, but other things according to the will of God. If there was some other need and there was money left over, then you could use it for that. And then he said, if there was still a need, verse 20, then Funds would be taken from the royal treasury. So if, as the uh, governors collected taxes in the province, if there were still some need about the work of the temple, then they could use uh, the taxes uh, from the royal treasury there uh, to pay for that. It, it's hard for me to believe that that was one of the things that Ezra requested, but maybe it was, I don't know. But then he, he goes even further um, in verse 21, he issues this de decree directly to the treasurers, just so there's no misunderstanding here. The treasurers in that province, and he let them know that uh, whatever may be required of you, he said, you, you do it diligently. In verse 22, then he put a limitation on some of these things. It's not just completely unlimited. In verse 20. Three, he says one of the reasons why he was doing this was so that the wrath against the kingdom of, uh, of the king, that there won't be wrath from the God of heaven against him and his sons and his kingdom. Verse 24, he didn't allow them to tax the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, and all those, all those that were involved in the work of the temple. You're not allowed to tax these people. And then look at verse 25. He gave uh, Ezra a lot of authority. They could appoint magistrates and judges and to execute judgment there in verse 26. And so we'll see Ezra exercising some of this a little bit later. So I, I would just suspect that some of that was beyond what Ezra would have requested. But, but anyway, this is what, what he granted him. 
And so if you get down to verse 27, 28, then uh, Ezra attributes all of this to the hand of God. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to adorn the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Hold your finger there. Maybe turn back to Ezra chapter 6 and verse 14. If you remember, when they finished building the temple, this is back in 516. Now this is 58 years prior to chapter 7. The latter part of chapter 6 verse 14 says, and they finished building according to the command of the God of Israel and the, de and the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes. See, this was before Artaxerxes was even king. 58 years, this goes way back. But he mentions Artaxerxes there. So Ezra, of course, writing this after the fact, knew that Artaxerxes here 58 years later would be uh, allowing these funds to go and be used for the temple. So that's probably why his name was recorded back there in, in chapter 6. And so verse 28 of chapter 7, latter part of that verse, he said, I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Chapter 8, there's a listing of at least some of those leading men. I'll just mention a couple of them there in verse 2. Uh, this Gershon, he was descended from Aaron through Phineas and Eliezer. And then uh, this Daniel, was he would be another uh, priest descended through Ithamar, who was another son of Aaron. And then there's a list of other people there who were leading men, but they weren't Levites and they weren't priests. And there's a man named uh, Shechaniah there in verse 3, and we'll, we'll see him a little bit later. Skip down to verse... 15. So he assembled all these people at the river that runs by Ahava, and we camped for three days. And then I observed we had a problem. He said there weren't any Levites. So we had some priests and had some other people, but we didn't have any Levites, and we need those in the service of, of the temple. And so he gathered some of these leading men in verse 16, and he sent them. He must have known this fellow named Ido, I-D-D-O, there in verse seven, 17. He sent them over to him, and the purpose was to find some Levites. And we so see they did that in verse 19. Uh, and they were sons of Merari. Now, Merari was another one of the sons of Levi. Now, Aaron, through whom the priest would come, he was a descendant of Kohath, that son of Levi. So these descendants through Merari wouldn't be, wouldn't be Levites. I mean, I'm sorry, they are Levites, but they wouldn't be priestly Levites. They're Levites, but not priests. Skip down to verse 21. So he says, I proclaimed a fast there at the river, and we humble ourselves before God to seek from him a safe journey for us, our little ones, and all of our possessions. And he gives a reason for this in verse 22. For I'm ashamed to request troops from the king. Look at a little further down. He says, he told the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to those who seek him. So he basically was saying, God's going to take care of us. And so now if I go asking for troops to provide safety for us, uh, I would be embarrassed to do that. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to ask him. So what do you do? He humbled himself before God. 
to seek his blessings. And uh, humility, there's a lot about humility in the Bible. And uh, the New Testament talks about it a lot. There in 1 Peter 5, verses 5 through 7, see there it says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. You just put it on, you cover yourself like a garment. For it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, for he may exalt you at the proper time, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And basically, that's what Ezra and those with him were doing. They were humbling themselves under the mighty hand of God. A little later, Micah would prophesy, and there in chapter 6 and verse 8, he said, Here's what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, thinking about that reminded me of what Jesus said about these two men who were praying. We'll not, not read it, but you remember one of them was a Pharisee, and he was saying, Lord, you're just so, I'm such a wonderful and righteous guy, you're lucky to have me, but this old uh, tax collector over here, don't know about him. But the tax collector says, wasn't even willing to lift his eyes up to heaven. And he just said, beat his breast, said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And, and Jesus said, that's the man that went down to his house justified. He was the humble man, not the self-righteous man. So uh, Ezra was humbling himself before God, and that's exactly what we should be doing today as well. Skip down to verse 26. So what did Ezra do with all these funds of silver and gold and everything that he was taking back? Well, he weighed it out and he gave it to some of the priests there in verse 29, some of the leading priests and Levites. He was going to put it in their care and they were to, to care for this until they would get down to Jerusalem, at which time they would turn it over to the leading priests there. Verse 31 says that God, uh, the hand of our God was over us. He delivered us from the hand of our enemy and the ambushes along the way. And thus we came to Jerusalem. So God saw them safely along the way. And it says we remained there three days that on the fourth day they took these funds and they waded out to this Meribah, the son of Uriah, the priest. Uh, and verse 34, and they, the wait was recorded at that time. So... Uh, Ezra was handling all this in an orderly way. He, he weighed it all out to the priest before they left Babylon, and then they did it again when they delivered it there in Jerusalem. So we know everything is on the up and up. Some of it didn't wind up in somebody's pocket, but it went where it was supposed to be. Verse 35, they offered burnt offerings. And uh, verse 36, they delivered the king's letter, this edict, to the king's satraps and to the governors of the provinces beyond the river so that they would know what uh, Artaxerxes' commands were regarding them, uh, Ezra, and what was supposed to take place there and built in uh, providing all these things for the temple and also the authority that he had given Ezra. See, these other governors and so forth would have to know about that. Chapter 9. Everything wasn't going so good along the way because as now when these after these things were completed, I, I believe we're about four months later here is what this is from the time that they had arrived. 
some princes approached me saying the people of Israel and the priests and Levites have not separated themselves from the, from the people of the land according to their abominations. And he lists several of them there. And uh, they had uh, taken wives from the people around them, which was against the law of Moses. He'll mention that a little bit later, what the law says. And look who were the main, uh, main ones to break the law here. It's down at the end of verse 2. The, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been the foremost in this unfaithfulness. So the very ones that should have been the shepherds, the ones that should have been teaching the law and seeing that uh, guiding everybody else were the very ones that were leading in breaking the law. And so look at his response in verse 3. He says, I tore my garments, my robe, I pulled some of the hair out of my head and out of my beard, and I sat down appalled. And that's how we should look at sin as well, right? We should be appalled, and we'll see some reasons for uh, some of the reasons for that here in just, just a few more verses. So then verse 4, he said, uh, Everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of, uh, of the exiles gathered to me, and I sat appalled even until the evening. So then the, the people had gathered around him and uh, beginning with verse 5, uh, Ezra begins to pray. I uh, put a couple of verses up there about prayer. And of course, we, we have already seen that Ezra was a righteous man approved of God. And there in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 12, it tells us that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer, but his face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So we, we have to uh, live, live lives like Ezra did if we expect uh, the Lord to hear our prayers. And we'll see later to be penitent. James 5 and verse 16, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. There in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, we see that was the law that had been broken. You shall not intermarry. This was just before they would enter the promised land, and Moses talking to the Israelites. He's uh, speaking of the law, and God's law was you're not going to, when you get into the promised land, you don't intermarry with people there. Actually, they were supposed to drive them out. And verse 4 of Deuteronomy chapter 7 tells us why. For they would turn your sons away from following me. And so uh, we, we know that the reason they went into Babylonian captivity in the first place, part of it was because they had done some of these very things and been led away and were uh, led into idolatry. And if you remember, unfortunately, uh, Solomon was one of the first to, to do that in a big way because he married a, a lot of foreign wives. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, uh, really says the same thing in, in different words in a shorter sentence. It just said, bad company corrupts good morals. And basically, that's what God was telling them. This is why you shouldn't intermarry with these uh, pagan people, because uh, bad company corrupts good morals. It won't be good for you. So we need to be careful who we associate with. Be careful who you marry. Is it somebody that's going to help you be a Christian or someone that will will hurt? 
And so in his prayer, beginning verse 6, he says, I'm ashamed and embarrassed for our iniquities have risen above our heads and the guilt has grown even to the heavens. And so he's uh, showing why he thinks about this sin. It's they're over their head in sin, as it were. And I think in verse 9 kind of tells us one of the reasons uh, that he was so embarrassed about this. Verse 9, he, he, he goes back and talks about when they were in Babylonian captivity. So it was at, at their darkest hour, actually. He said, God had not forsaken us and extended his loving kindness to us. And so even after they had been taken into Babylonian captivity for all of their sins, God had brought the remnant back. And so basically what he's saying is look at, look at God's loving kindness, how kindly he's treated us, how good he's been to us. And here we turn around and repay him by breaking his laws. You ought to be embarrassed. God has been so good to you. And then you turn against him. You, you should be embarrassed and appalled at that. We should look at sin the same way, right? Uh, the same thing is, is true for us today. We've uh, down here, Jim, I'm at the right place. I lost my place here. Uh, in Romans 2 and verse 4, it tells us that uh, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. So uh, we think about how good God has been to us today. And so uh, if we sin against him and realizing how good he's been to us, then we should be embarrassed and appalled. And so he continues uh, his prayer. And we've forsaken your commandments, verse 10. Uh, he goes back to the law again. The law was don't. Don't intermarry with these pagan people. Uh, he talks about the all that had come upon them, the Babylonian captivity there in verse 13. And yet you break his commandments uh, yet again. And he, he says, God, you are righteous. And under these conditions, uh, no one can stand before before you because of this. We can't stand before God because of our sins. So we get down to chapter 10. The prayer ends and uh, it says while Ezra was praying, making confession and weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a large group of men, women and children gathered around him and I guess they were hearing his prayer and they wept bitterly. And so here's this uh, Shechaniah shows up and uh, he, he's got a suggestion. He speaks to Ezra. He says, we have been unfaithful to our God and have uh, married foreign women, foreign women from uh, the peoples of the land. And yet now there is hope in spite of all of this. And we're going to see the hope's going to be in repentance. He said, verse 3, so now let us make a covenant that we'll put away these foreign wives and let it be done according to the law. And now he speaks to Ezra. He said, this matter is your responsibility. You know, Ezra was the one that Artaxerxes had given power to execute judgments. And he was a priest too. And he said, so this is your responsibility, but we'll be with you. So be courageous and act. Let's, let's get this thing done. It's important. So verse 5, Ezra rose with the leading priests. 
And he made a proclamation there in verse 7 that all through Judah and Jerusalem, all the exiles were to assemble in Jerusalem. In verse 8, they give them three days that everybody, all the remnant then is supposed to come to Jerusalem. And anybody that wouldn't do that, uh, their properties would be uh, forfeited and they would be excluded from the assemblies. So verse 9, all of the people came. It was the, the ninth month, it said, the 20th of the month. That would be about November, December time frame. So we get down to uh, verse 11. He was talking to all these people that are assembled now and telling them that, uh, that they needed to uh, do God's will and separate themselves from the people of the land and these foreign wives. And so in verse 12, they said, that's right. That's our duty. That, that's what we'll do. Ezra, you're right. And, and that's what uh, we will do. But they said in verse 13, there's a lot of us here and it's a rainy season. It's cold. And this thing, he said that we've transgressed greatly in this matter. So what he's saying is this thing has gone on long enough that it's pretty widespread. And so we're not going to be able to, to deal with this as right here today. This is going to take a little time. And so what they wanted to do then was for Ezra to pick out some of their leaders in the various cities, and those leaders would investigate and find who it was that had these foreign wives and get this thing settled. And so in verse 16, that's what the exiles decided to do, and Ezra selected these leading men to take care of that. And verse, uh, the end of verse 16, says, and so they convened, about, it was about 10 days later, these leading men in the various cities convened on the first day of the 10th month, which was about 10 days after Ezra had set all this up. And then it says, verse 17, they finished this investigation on the first day of the first month. So it took about three months for all of this to take place. One verse I want to look at here and think about. Uh, Bruce uh, led us in a study a week or two ago, about two weeks I guess it was, in the First Corinthians chapter 5. And in some ways the church there had a similar problem. They had a man in the, uh, in the church there that had his father's wife. So there was open sin in the church. And they had not... Uh, dealt with that very well. They were just accepting of that and letting that man stay there in that condition uh, right in the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, he said, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that 11, a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And of course, if we hearken right back to Ezra chapters 9 and 10, we see that's exactly what happened, was it? That they didn't deal with that problem of, of been marrying these foreign wives in the first place. In other words, they didn't nip it in the bud, so to speak, and it had spread to where it was a, a huge problem. It took them three months to get it all straightened out there and to get people doing right again. So Paul warns us when those things come up in the, in the church, don't tolerate it. If you do, you become really part of it, and you'll need to repent as well. So the good lesson here then is that when these people were confronted with their sins and when they recognized uh, how good God had been to them 
it uh, pricked their hearts and it made them ashamed and they trembled at what they had done and, and they repented and that's exactly the way the kindness of God is, is supposed to work. Now the, the rest of chapter 10 is just a listing of some of those that had married foreign wives and, and put them away. So we won't read all of those names that wouldn't serve much purpose. So that is the end of Ezra chapter 10. And we did make four chapters tonight, didn't we? It was blasting through it pretty quick. But uh, enjoyed the book of, of Ezra, and I hope that you have too. And Lord willing, next week we'll begin the first three chapters of the book of Esther. So we'll actually be going back in time just a little bit. That concludes our lesson for this evening. Possibly there's someone here tonight who has never obeyed the gospel. If you're here and you have never obeyed the gospel, I hope you listen closely to what we've seen in the book of Ezra in these last few chapters. Uh, if you remember going all the way back five weeks ago, we talked about Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 24. It tells us that all of God's commandments are for our good always, and that would include what we've learned here in, in the book of Ezra. And we see that uh, when they saw God's goodness and kindness and saw how that they had violated his commands, it uh, embarrassed them to the point that they repented. They want to set that right and get back right with God again. And uh, again, we read Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 that God's uh, kindness is intended to do that for us. And so it's supposed to work today just exactly the way it did in Ezra chapters 9 and 10. That's the way God's kindness <clears throat> is supposed to work today. So if you've never obeyed the gospel, uh, think about God's kindness. Any number of verses might come to mind. I guess the best known would be John 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's the greatest act of kindness there's ever been. Kindness of God in sending his son and the kindness of his son being willing to come and give his life that we might have life. If you never obeyed the gospel, think about that. Think about God's kind of all that he's done for you. Won't that cause you, hopefully, to repent and to turn to God? If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you repent and turn to him, be, uh, confess your faith before man, and be buried with him in baptism. The blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse your every sin. You'll be added uh, to the kingdom, to the family of God and have that hope in heaven. That's the way the kindness of God is supposed to work in us. If you are a child of God and you become unfaithful, it works the same way for you too. We know that God is faithful and just to forgive as we repent. Whatever your spiritual need may be, we invite you to come and let that desire be made known while we stand, while we sing.